Christ is faithful. That'll be the title of our message this morning. Christ is faithful. Corinth was an ancient city. Um, and because it's an ancient city, it had a long history. It's founded somewhere in the time of the ministry of Jeremiah. And about 150 B.C., 150 years before Christ was born, uh, the Romans utterly destroyed it. It was just a ghost town. And it wasn't until Julius Caesar came along in 44 B.C. that he decided to reestablish the city because it's a port city and it was, the location was just great. It flourished after the founding. Um, because those three axioms of real estate, location, 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 um, it's a port city. It was en route to Rome from the east. A lot of people came in. A lot of money came in. And money and jobs attract people. And people bring in other types of business. And it was just a thriving, vibrant, modern city by the time Paul came along um, in the, in, after the writing of this letter, or before the writing of this letter. I was trying to think of an equivalent. It might be like Austin, Texas today. Austin has a long history in Texas, but it's only recently become a place where wealthy people come and there's a lot of businesses and Austin is just booming. And with that money and with the people coming in from all over the country, you've got a lot of weird stuff that goes on in Austin and and it's flourishing, but you've got all the things that come along with a lot of people moving there. Human nature is the same. And so when you have wealth, you have power and influence, and you have people spending their time and their money on things of the flesh, and then you have people trying to get more money and trying to get to the top, and that's kind of what you had there in Corinth. So you have a a city that just rebuilt 100 years old and and money's flowing in, people from all over the world coming and moving and, and coming by through business and trade. And if you bring that kind of attitude, though, into a church, you can see how you'd have problems. That kind of individualism is, is antithetical to the gospel. And so the cross was offensive to those self-made, individualist, wealthy um, philosophically minded people that they might have found in Corinth. Kind of the attitude that you have as pervasive in our society. People are independent. And they, they don't need, they need to go out and get what they want, but they don't need to listen and to, to hear the truth of the gospel. So Paul founded the church there in Corinth. He was there for about 18 months. And then he left. And he was three years later, he writes this letter. Um, It was written from Ephesus. So Paul had heard some reports from people about some bad things going on in the church. People would would say, hey, Paul, did you hear about what was going on with Corinth? it's, It's pretty bad. And someone had reached out to Paul and wrote some questions. And so this letter addresses those things. So Paul writes this letter to the church of Corinth and said, listen, I've heard some things about what's going on. I need to talk to you about these things. And some of you have asked me some questions. And so Paul is addressing those concerns and answering those questions in this first epistle to, Paul, uh, uh, to the Corinthians. 
And so it's kind of a unique letter because we're reading the second half of a correspondence. You ever been in a restaurant or someplace and somebody's talking real loud on their cell phone and you only hear one half of the conversation and you hear the person talking and you say, wow, I wonder what that other person said. I wonder, you know, what are the, what's he talking about? And so you're trying to sort of mirror, listen to, or you might try to listen, but you can't help it, but you're, you're mirror listening. You're hearing one side of it and you're taking that information and trying to figure out maybe what that person is saying on the other end of the phone, even though you can't hear it. Well, some of the book of 1 Corinthians is like that. We have the answer to a question, but we're not 100% sure all the things that went into that question. And so it's interesting in that way um, that you have real world situations that Paul is addressing, but he's given the answer even though we might not know the full extent of the question. So in some ways you have to be careful when we read this that we don't just assume uh, we know more than we do. You have to stick to the text. It's also, also different from other letters in the New Testament because they're not being attacked from the outside. The problem is coming from inside. It's not that the, the church, the problem wasn't that the church was in Corinth with all the idolatry and paganism and everything that was going on, it was, there was too much of Corinth in the church. There was too much of the culture that was assumed to be the way that you live guiding how the church lived and, and acted. And this is a, sort of an evergreen problem for all God's people. Um, even in the Old Testament, God brought the children of these. Israel out of Egypt, but there's still a lot of Egypt left in the children of Israel. It's what you have here. God had called these people out of Corinth, out of the world, but there's still a lot of world in the people. Some people had a problem with Paul and were opposed and working against him, but it hadn't really gotten that bad. It's going to get bad, and you can see that in 2 Corinthians, but they were just offended by him. His style of ministry, his preaching, they questioned his authority. They, they were just divisive. And when Paul writes this letter, Paul, understanding the powder keg that was there in Corinth, writes this letter with his best intentions that they would hear the word, repent, and not not just cut him off, because he knew there was already people opposed. There were divisions in the church. And it, and it started, but not to the point of fighting and breaking off, but it was headed in that direction. And what a, what a trying situation that is when you go into somewhere and you know that there are divisions, when you know, when you can just feel that there's, there's tension and you want to try to help, but you know that it could just as easily explode. We've all been in those situations, haven't we? Um, I've been at a funeral that's been like that, of a family member, where people were divided up into three different sections in the, the funeral home, and they wouldn't talk to each other, and, and it, was, it was tense and very, um, very troubling. And you knew just one person say the wrong thing, and it, it might end in and bloodshed and, uh, and fighting. It was, it was that bad. and It hadn't got that bad yet, but there were divisions. So Paul writes this 
to heal the divisions, not to, to blow things up. So this, this letter is just a, a warning against different dangers that the church at Corinth were involved in or maybe didn't even realize that they were in danger of. Paul warns them uh, against cliques that could destroy the church, sexual immorality, idolatry, um, problems in worship, even a misunderstanding and denial of the resurrection. So this church was called out of a sinful world, but still living in a sinful world, one that they don't belong to. And that certainly is applicable to us. God has called us out of the world. But we're still in the world. We live in this world and we witness and we have to have our our dealings in the world. But we're not of this world. And there's always going to be that clash until the Lord Jesus comes back. That we are foreigners in the in the earth it's not that we're just foreigners in like a foreigners in a nation we're foreigners to the earth there's no place that we could go to where we say well this is the christian land our citizenship is in heaven and and though we're in the world we're not of the world anymore so this this letter helps us to navigate that and to live under the King Jesus. Christians, we've been delivered from this world even though we don't belong to it. And in this introduction, we see that God is is faithful to provide His people and His church all the promised blessings from start to finish. God is faithful. And so... Though we live in an unfaithful time, and in an immoral time, and an ungodly time, and though things seem to gradually go worse and worse and worse, God is faithful. And He is faithful to us now, and He will be faithful to us through the end. So there's two sections of what I read this morning. There's the introduction, the salutation, the hello in verses 1, 2, and 3. And then Paul says he's thankful for some things in verses 4 through 9. And so we're going to look first at this salutation and see that Christ is faithful in every place. In this Christ-centered greeting, Christ is faithful in every place. He's faithful to keep His people no matter where they may be. And there's different ways that we can see this in this greeting. One way as God keeps His people, it's through the ministry of the Word of God. So right off the bat, we see Paul as a called man. Now Paul was a called man, but he wasn't called by the church. He was called of God. Paul had a special mission straight from God Himself. And as Brother Harold was speaking this morning, he had a unique mission as an apostle, that none of us will ever experience, but every one of us this morning experiences the blessings and the fruit of his ministry. That the apostle Paul was used of God in 
many ways that we still feel the blessings of these almost 2,000 years later. He's unique. He was moved by the Spirit of God and penned the very words of God. He was an ambassador that spoke revealed divine truth. He was called of God. This wasn't the church's calling. The church didn't say, Paul, we're going to make you an apostle and then you're going to go out and do the ministry that we have ordained you to do. So, for example, when someone says they're called to preach, the church has the responsibility to agree with that assessment or, or not, or disagree with it. The church ought to examine their life and their gifts and their knowledge. And then the church can ordain or set them aside or give them a their, their ministry. So that's what a church does. Someone says, well, I'm called to preach. And say, well, can you preach? Do you know anything about the scriptures? Do you have a gift of teach? Are you apt to teach? And, and the church examines and sees and hears and helps. And so, yes, we, we ordain you to the gospel ministry. We, we, set, we recognize that you do have a gift. But that's not how Paul became an apostle. Paul was called of Jesus Christ, whom he met on the road to Damascus and gave him a particular ministry. It wasn't the church of Jerusalem. It wasn't the church of Antioch. It wasn't the church of Corinth. But God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, sought him, called him, and audibly and specifically gave him both the gifting and the direction of his ministry. God called him by his divine will, as the text says, and made him fit for the service. Now, Paul was very intelligent. Paul knew a lot about um, the, the Jewish religion as a Pharisee. But it wasn't because Paul sought this office or even wanted it. This is part of God's work that he called Paul to be a vessel that would go into the worlds beyond the regions of Judea, out into all the world to preach the gospel. And not only to preach the gospel, but to understand and to reveal the mystery of the gospel. So this one man God had called and gifted with both the ability to teach and the passion and the zeal to spread the gospel and also the revelation of the mystery of of Christ and the mystery of redemption. That God had given Paul the very words that describe what Christ did for us what he does in us, and what he has promised to us. And so with that, we are blessed this morning because we have this this book of 1 Corinthians that God had given to Paul, the very words of God. He was called to this mission. And God still keeps his people. He is faithful to keep us through the ministry of the, the Apostle Paul, through the word, by the Spirit, in reading and understanding and holding to the Word of God. This is part of God's work in sending the Apostle and preaching the Word. Most of the New Testament was written by this man. And it was written according to God's will and purpose. He is Christ's Apostle for Christ's glory 
for Christ's people. I watched a video clip of this woman, Pastrix, we'll all say, and they were reading from uh, Corinthians. And they skipped over a part of the passage. And she said, I just want to point out why we skipped over a part of the passage and we didn't read it. She said, because that passage was yikes. And she said that Paul was kind of a jerk. And so they just weren't going to read it because they didn't like it. This has always been the way of false teachers to attack Paul. Always. You ever hear somebody attacking Paul, run away from him. And it's not because we venerate the Apostle Paul. It is because Paul was the Apostle of Christ. He was called of God. He was called of Christ to write God's word, to reveal God's truth for his churches. And so it's not an attack on Paul. It's an attack on God. They don't like the words of the New Testament and they don't want to say, I don't like the words of Jesus. So they say, well, Paul and Jesus disagreed and I don't like Paul. Paul's kind of a jerk. And why did she say that? Well, probably because she was a woman pastor. That's probably the first reason why she said that. And Paul has a lot to say about that. Secondly, just being in rebellion to the truth of the word, she doesn't like what Paul has to say. And she still wants to pretend to be a Christian, so she can't say, well, I don't like Jesus, so I don't like Paul. And that's evident all throughout scriptures. Why do you think Paul had so many enemies in the New Testament? It's not because Paul caused trouble. It's because he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why don't people attack James or Andrew? Well, it's because Paul wrote most of the New Testament. And that's what they don't like. So through Paul's calling, God keeps his people. We heed the words of God, the revelation of the mystery, ethical instruction in the word of God. God is faithful to us this morning. That we still have the words of God that is preserved in this, in this book. Christ is faithful to a called people. So Paul was called to be an apostle. And we find in verse number two that the, the church here was called as well. A called people. Now the church of God, though it was founded by Paul, it didn't belong to Paul. It didn't belong to the people that were there. It belonged to the Lord God Almighty. So it was the church of God which is at Corinth. It was God's church that was located in Corinth. A church is an assembly. So if I ask you what a church is, um, you, wouldn't, you shouldn't say, well, it's a building. Or you shouldn't say, well, it's what you do on Sunday morning. A church, which is what the word Paul used here, a church is an assembly. It's an assembly of people. It's an assembly, and if you go through, uh, through the New Testament and discern who assembles, well, it's God's people who assemble. It's God's people who, um, who are baptized, who join together in, to worship of God. So it's not a place, it's not a building. Because there was the church of God, but where was the church of God? The church of God was in Corinth. But if everybody picked up and they all went to Athens, then there would have been the church of God in Athens. 
we have gathered to this place because this is the place where we gather to worship. But this building isn't a church. The church assembles. It's the people of God who assemble as a church. So Buffalo Valley Baptist Church belongs to God. We are an assembly of God's people. We meet here, but we could meet anywhere else that we wanted to. This place is where we meet. So this place isn't necessarily a holy place, but it's God's holy people who have gathered together. In the 11th century, Christians from the east and the west gathered together because they were going to go back and take back Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been conquered and taken away from the, the, the Byzantine Empire by the, the Muslims, and they were going to go back and take it back because they had taken Christianity's most holy place, they said. They're going to take it back and so that Constantinople would once again rule in Jerusalem. They went to capture the holy places, but it wasn't the places that were holy. Just because the church once was in Corinth doesn't mean that Corinth is eternally a holy place. I don't know if there is a church in Corinth anymore or Antioch, or any of these other places. In every place a church meets, that's a holy place because God's people have gathered together. Notice, to the, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So it's not the building, or not the particular location, but it's God's holy people who have been called, and they meet and they assemble together. God is faithful in that we are both sanctified and we are saints. We're sanctified by Christ and we're also set apart to be saints, called to be a holy people. Did you know that this morning that if you are in Christ, you are sanctified by Christ, but you are called to be saints? That's your identity this morning. You're saints of God. All of God's people who have been, who've repented and trusted in Jesus for salvation are saints. Now I know, um, you know some, some back in history they'll say, well, this was St. Augustine. That's, that's the name of a town in Florida named after um, a man back in the, uh, the old time, St. Augustine. Well, why do they call him that? Because they venerated and they've lifted him up. But all God's people, not just famous people, not just certain people, but all God's people are called to be saints. If you want to be a Catholic saint, it's a long process. Listen to this process you have to be if you're going to be a saint. First of all, you have to die. Right? You can't be a saint unless you die, unless the Pope offers a waiver. So the Pope has, he can waive this requirement um, but typically you have to be dead. And you have to be dead for five years. So you can't be a saint for at least five years. And so what happens is the local bishop starts the proceedings. And they say, I think this person ought to be a saint. Well, as soon as he says that and fills out the paperwork, the person becomes a servant of God. So it's so-and-so servant of God. So there's a postulator that goes and gathers information about this person's life. So they start collecting data, they do interviews and, and all these types of things. 
and they see if this person lived with heroic virtue. Not just virtue, but heroic virtue. And the case is brought before this group called the Congregation of the Causes of the Saints. And so they listen to the proceedings, they listen to the, the information, and then they vote. And they say, okay, I think that this should go on to the next step. It goes to the Pope, the Pope signs off on it, then the person goes from being called a servant of God to being venerable. So have you ever heard of somebody saying the venerable so-and-so? Well, that's what that, they're getting at, that they're in the second phase to sainthood. But that's not all. The venerable person has to have performed a miracle in their life. And so what they have to do now is they have to go and investigate if they did any miracles. And then it starts all over. So they gather the information, it goes to the group, they vote on it, and so forth. And you say, well, then they become a saint. No, they don't become a saint. They become blessed. So the blessed so-and-so, um, they're no longer a servant. They've graduated beyond venerable, but now they're blessed. Then, to move on, they have to have a miracle since the, the, all this started. So whenever the guy fills out the paperwork until the time after they're blessed, they have to perform a miracle from beyond the grave. So somebody probably has to pray to their name and, and then they somehow give a miracle while they're dead and so forth. And then once they have that information, they start the process all over again. And then, and only then, can they be a saint. Long process, a lot of rules. There's over a hundred different rules and qualifications and so forth. But God makes his saints by grace through faith. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to have done amazing, heroic deeds for the faith. You know what you do? You rest in Jesus Christ's promise. And by his grace, and by his calling, I can make you saint, make you venerable, blessed, and serve God. You don't bother for to go and scan your life to find if you've been virtuous enough. But Christ is faithful to take you, child of God, and make you a saint. To make you a holy one. To make you blessed. It's not our works that save us and bless us, but it was His work. And Though we may live an ordinary life, that we wake up and, and do the job that God has called us to do and been faithful to our families and faithful to our church, and, and no one knows what you've done for the Lord besides your family and your, your church and your community. God knows, and He is faithful to, to bless us and to keep us. It doesn't matter what other people call us. It is who we are in Jesus. You, child of God, are a saint. That's who you are. Your identity, your practices are all these things that God has given to you to, to do. And, and you take up these things up in your lives and you live according to God's word. And you don't have to. You don't have to do these great things in order to earn God's favor or to earn God's blessing. 
but it is by God's grace. I mentioned the Crusades earlier. In order to get people to go and to fight those Crusades, the Pope pronounced that everyone who went to war would have their sins forgiven. And at the time, it was just a, a lot of mess, especially in the, in the West. A lot of uh, barbarity and a lot of, a lot of sinful living. And so when the Pope says you can automatically go to heaven, if you go and fight in this war, well, you, you had people, tens of thousands of people signed up and they couldn't wait to go to have their sins forgiven. If they would do these mighty deeds, then they'd be forgiven. But no, we know that we are forgiven, called, set apart, sanctified, and called to be saints, not through our heroic deeds, but through Jesus Christ and by His grace. Notice there also that He's called them with, in verse 2, that in every place... Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. So God is faithful to us, and He's faithful in every place. This church was very blessed, but they weren't saints because they were special in the sense that they did, they they had more. They were called to be a holy people and a holy congregation. But also they weren't Lone Ranger Christians. They weren't solo saints. But part of God's people. Called to be saints. The church of God called together to be saints with all, with that in every place a call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it wasn't just them individually. It was them gathered at the church, but it wasn't just the church in Corinth. But it was all of God's people in every place who call upon the name of the Lord. A couple hundred years after this letter was written, the churches started looking to certain churches for answers to questions. So this letter in Corinth, they had written to Paul and said, we got questions, we don't know how to deal with this, and Paul would answer them back. Well, down through the ages... This started happening where maybe a church that was, you know, a church in Athens, maybe, would say, we have a question, well, who do we ask? Well, they said, they started asking churches that were mentioned in the Scriptures. So they'd ask, they'd go to Antioch, and they'd ask Antioch a question. And the pastor there, or they'd go to Jerusalem, or they'd go to Rome, or, or some other place, to ask questions. As if they had they were more spiritual or they had more information um, apart from Scripture or they were wiser and so forth. But Paul lays this out very clearly that though the people were blessed in Corinth with many spiritual gifts, they called on the Lord Jesus Christ in that place as does the churches all over the place. That there's not one church that was the main, the main one or as it went on, it was seven churches at first that were the main seven and everyone bowed down and listened to them because that was the place where the word was heard and that was the place where knowledge could be held. But no, it was those who called be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of the Lord, both theirs and ours. 
So Corinth were the people of God just as we are the people of God. We're not less the house of God because we are in West Virginia as opposed to Jerusalem. And I understand the appeal why somebody might want to go be baptized in the River Jordan and people do that. But that water in the River Jordan is not going to baptize you any better or any worse than the, the water in Buffalo Creek, the water in the Elk, or the water down in the baptistry. It's not a place that, that is special and holy. And it's not one particular church that was special and holy, but all of God's people, all of God's churches all over the world call upon the name of the Lord. In the Old Testament, the phrase to call upon the name of the Lord was reference to those who worship the true God. Seth had a son called his name Enos. And then begin men to call upon the name of the Lord in Genesis 4, 26. Genesis 12, 8. Abraham built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And you can find that a couple times with Abraham and, and others in Genesis. So in the Old Testament, people who called upon the name of the Lord were the true worshipers of God. Paul says, you have been called to be saints and all others who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he said, in every place. In the book of Deuteronomy, 13 times by my count, it talks about the place to worship. So in Deuteronomy, they're back to enter into the promised land. And so the people of God who call upon the name of God are told there's going to be a certain place that you worship. So for example, in chapter 12 and verse 11, it says, there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to call, cause his name to dwell there. Thither shall you bring all that commands you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithe, the heath offering of your hand, and all your choice vows which you vow unto the Lord. So 13 times in Deuteronomy says there's going to be a place. Here's the place. There's a place. There's one place you can worship, you can sacrifice. It's right here. To the Lord, to Jehovah. And so Paul says, you who call upon the name of the Lord, in every place, not just one place, so this place, when it was First, wherever the tabernacle was, then it was the temple. That was the place where God dwelt. That was the place where they worshipped. But when Christ died and the temple veil was rent in twain and he rose from the dead, the time had come where you don't go to the mountain to worship more. As this, you want Christ to be in the truth. So you don't have to make him into the group. You don't have to be baptized in the Jordan River. That just like in Corinth, same in Clay County, that in every place that we, that we are worshiping God in Christ, in every place that, where His saints call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. So Abraham built the altar unto the Lord. People called upon the name of the Lord. Deuteronomy, there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose. 
And so Paul takes these two themes of Old Testament, place and calling upon the name of the Lord, and says, that is you saints who call upon Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the fulfillment of all that Old Testament prophecy and types and pictures that we can call upon the name of the Lord here and the way to the throne of grace and to worship God in spirit has been opened up through Christ. In every place where Christ is called upon, Christ is faithful to be with his people. He's faithful to be with us this morning as we call upon his name because he's faithful to promise. Paul is saying here in verse 2 and verse 3 that Jesus Christ is truly God. During this time, the imperial cult looked to Caesar as Lord. But Paul is saying, no, Christ is Lord. So as I was saying, in Genesis and Deuteronomy, they called upon the name of the Lord, the place of the Lord. That was all capital letters. And that in the... The Old Testament, that's the Lord's name, translated Lord. So this carries with it that Jesus is not only just master, but ruler, and God, and Christ, and King. He's God's anointed who fulfills God's plan. So to call upon the name of Jesus is to call upon the name of the Lord as Lord and Savior and King. And He is faithful to all those that call upon Him. So he's faithful in every place, and he's also faithful in everything. So that's the last point. Christ is faithful in everything. In verses 4 through 9, Christ is faithful to bless his people and all that they need for life and godliness. Paul thanks God for the grace given to the church by Christ. But you, have, but you have no worry when you believe and trust in Christ. You have no hope outside of Christ, but you have no fear in Christ. The grace of our Lord is freely given. He says that he thanks God in verse 5 that, that you are enriched by him. So he thanks God for God's grace in verse 4 and verse 5 that we are enriched being enriched doesn't say you have the, the carrot hanging out in front of you that you might be rich, but we, have already, we already have these riches in Christ. In the New Testament, it speaks of the riches of his goodness, the riches of his glory, the riches of Christ's wisdom and knowledge, the riches of the glory of his inheritance, the riches of his kindness towards us, the riches in glory in Jesus. And the riches of the full assurance and of understanding. These unsearchable riches we all have now in Christ Jesus. We are enriched by him even now, this morning. You have more, you have more in Christ than sometimes we, we, we realize. The prosperity preachers will say that you can have it all if you do this and do that. Paul says you already have the riches of his grace and his glory and his wisdom and his kindness and the assurance of his understanding. The riches of the inheritance waiting for us. These things belong to you. And he thanks God uh, for this. He thanks God for the gifts that they have. 
Some of the Corinthians' biggest problems came from their greatest strength. Because the church at Corinth was very gifted by God. But the problem wasn't the gifts, it was how they used them and what they thought about them and what they thought about themselves with the gifts. Kind of like money, that money's not a problem, but what you do with it, what you think about yourself because you have it, and so forth, that's where the problem is. It's, it's not with the possession of the gift, it's with what you do with it and what you think about yourself and others with it. So this gift that God had given them was their greatest strength, but also the source of their, their weakness. They thought a lot of themselves because of it. Paul didn't want them to be lacking in any gift and or charisma as the Greek word is. That's where we get the term charismatic. He didn't want them to be lacking in any gift, normal or extraordinary, including the sign gifts. But he said that they were enriched and have everything. They came behind in nothing. They didn't need anything. And so you and I, conformed in Christ, gifted by Christ, enriched by Christ, have everything that we need pertaining to our life and godliness. We don't fall behind anything. You have everything you need this morning, Christian. You don't need anything else to live the Christian life. He has blessed you and enriched you and given you all that you need to stand before Him in glory. You don't have to catch up in order to get to heaven. You don't have, to, uh, you don't have things lacking that you have to take care of so you can get to heaven. He has gifted you and enriched you and provided with you all that you need. Waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're confirmed in Christ. We have all we need in Christ. And we're looking for Him to return. We don't have to dread it. We don't have to fear it. We can look for Him and say, praise God. Thank Him for His grace. He's confirmed me. He's sanctified me. He's sanctifying me. He's gifted me. I'm enriched in Him. I have the testimony confirmed in my heart that He's died for me and risen for me and has lived for me. And I'm going to stand blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul thanks God for them. In verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called to the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's called us, you and I, Unto the fellowship of Him. A holy, unbreakable, personal, loving communion and fellowship. Love without condition, personal fellowship and communion, an unbreakable union with Him. God is faithful, who's called us to the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Scan back over the text that we looked at this morning and you're going to see something that in every verse Christ is lifted up some way. Either in His name or the pronouns referring to Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. Starting in verse 1, you have the Apostle of Jesus Christ. We find God's people are sanctified in Christ. That we are called by Christ and grace and peace comes from Christ. The grace of God given by Jesus. 
We are enriched by Jesus. We are confirmed in the testimony of Jesus in verse 6. Verse 7, we're waiting for Jesus to return. We're confirmed to the end by Jesus until the day of the Lord Jesus in the fellowship of the Lord Jesus. This was a Christ-centered hello and a Christ-centered thanksgiving for the church. Our only hope is in Jesus. Our only power for the Christian life is in Jesus. Our only hope in life and death is the grace of God through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't have Christ as the focus of your life, then your life is out of focus. If, if Christ isn't the center of your worship, of your workday, of your family, of your home, then your life is out of focus. Because He makes us holy. We have our identity in Him. He has forgiven us. He has called us. We're waiting for His return. We have His testimony confirmed in us. We fellowship with the Son and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our King. He is our Master. He is our Lawgiver. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our Priest. He is our way to heaven. He is the the pardon for our sin and the power for our life. And though this church had a lot of problems, the, the foundation, the groundwork is, Paul was laying is Christ, is Jesus. All these other things that we can get distracted by, they should all fall by the wayside in Jesus. I was reading some comments about Brother Pete Horn and, and a friend of mine asked him, he, he wrote this and he said he asked him some years ago, if you could go back and start your ministry all over again, what would you do different? And he told him, I'd preach Jesus a lot more and not worry so much about those other things. Christ. Paul stressed that over and over and over. It's Christ. And then the last thing as we wind up here, of all the churches in the New Testament, Corinth seems to be the one that was in the most bad shape. They had a lot of problems. They had a lot of issues. A sinful group of people. And how did Paul address them? Not to you, a bunch of low lives, you, you um, liberals, you, uh, you know, all these different names you could call them, I guess. What do you call them? Saints, sanctified, blessed, gifted in fellowship of the Lord Jesus. And that's a comfort to me. I'm a wretch of a sinner. I do things I don't want to do and wish I hadn't done. I lose my temper. I say things I regret. Anybody can experience that with me, I guess. Get judgmental over things and ignore my own faults. Fail to be gentle and kind and gracious. What hope do I have of all people? And then I read here in this first, in this introduction to this church with all these problems. And Paul says, the grace of God in Christ Jesus has sanctified you, has made you holy, has conformed you, who will make you stand blameless before him and his coming, that has enriched you and has blessed you 
and fellowships with you and loves you and has given you all these gifts that you may continue to be faithful and is faithful to you. And then I remember that it's not my sins or my good works, but it is His work in forgiving me of my sins and then enriching me with His grace. I see in Corinth in the words of this text that Christ is faithful to those who call upon His name. He's faithful to those who trust in His work. And my identity and my standing before Him is my life hidden in Christ. I have fellowship with Him. I'm forgiven by Him. I'm made holy by Him. I have a hope to stand before Him blameless. I'm being cleansed by His blood and pardoned by His grace. That's the message. That's the introduction. Trust in the Christ who died and rose for sinners because He is faithful to save. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word this morning and calls us to cling to Christ.